No need for a fancy introduction today. We're doing what everybody loves, what everybody craves, and what's oh so simple for me. More missing 411 stories. All right. You know what's coming? Let's do this. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing Missing Hidden. I am your big brother, Brad, the host of the show, and we're very excited to have you here. We're talking about everybody's favorite bad thing, Missing 411 Stories, what could be better. And as an extra treat, we're doing this one totally, completely, 100% unscripted, meaning... I have not written a single word to go by when it comes to this episode. It will be an unmitigated disaster, and I hope you enjoy the fireworks. Now, before we begin, I don't do business, but I do share love early on, right? Right. So we got this thing, the the Killin or the KMH Plus. It's our premium service for those who appreciate more outlandish topics and i'm happy yet incredibly shocked to announce that we have four new members of our subscription this this is incredible i don't know what i'm doing right or wrong maybe all that time i took off was good Maybe y'all are paying me not to record, and and I'm fine with that if that's what y'all want. But anyway, um, first we start with Tamson, just a magical creature of of unquestioned and unbridled beauty. It's it's literally if 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 when you think of Tamson, just think of the most beautiful object in the universe and there you go that gives us tamson we we also have suzanne who has apparently suffered a massive head wound and decided that joining kmh plus is a good way to spend her money and we're so thankful for that head wound she is a terrific person and had so much going for her in life before this terrible tragedy. But we're glad that she's decided to latch on to our group. We'll support her. We'll take care of her. We we next have Daryl. What can you say about a guy named Daryl? He may have a brother named Daryl. We don't know. But we're very excited to have him on board the train as well. Just, just, Watching Daryl walk down the street is like having poetry read to you. That's what I'll say about Daryl. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, it's not a word. Don't don't use that in your your high school essays, kids. Um, Sam. Sam. We got Sam. What did we do before we had Sam? I don't remember a time pre-Sam frankly. All of that, everything before today doesn't count. All right. The history of Killing Missing His Hidden is deleted. It, it's erased. It's thrown away because this is our, our AS period after Sam. This is when things really get going. So thank you, Sam, for finally making this happen. Honestly, thanks to all four of y'all. That's just, I mean, it's overwhelming uh, and incredibly flattering and certainly don't feel deserving of such awesome listeners, but somehow I've, I, I've found all y'all and y'all are amazing. So thank you so, so very much for joining in and and being willing to support the podcast in such a generous, generous way. Y'all totally rock my world in a very healthy way. Okay. All right. Um, again, I'm not getting into a lot of news or anything like that. We're just going to tell stories today. So, I mean, 
as far as I'm concerned, let's get to telling. Okay, sound good? Wonderful. Well, we're going to start off our little journey into this crazy world by heading up to Oregon and focusing on the case of Samuel Epoch, I believe. Hopefully, that's what we're calling him. His disappearance took place in 1977, specifically October 10th, around 5 p.m. northeast of Tumalo Falls in Oregon. He was 22 years old at this time. He had gone hunting with his father, and they reached an area that was special to them, where they often hunted when Samuel was younger. And they decided at this point they were going to split up. Uh, they were each going to go their own ways, and they were going to meet up in four hours. So... They do this, and Dad comes back, but Samuel never does. So Dad waits another four hours before finally calling the sheriff. Sheriff calls the county search and rescue team, and by the time they get up and ready to go, it's too dark to make the climb up this area of the mountains. Uh, just too dangerous in the dark. So they said they were going to start, you know, sunrise the next morning. So on October 12th, which would be two days after Samuel disappeared, local newspapers got a statement from Frank Earl, who was coordinating the search. And he said that this was a very puzzling situation that Samuel was in excellent physical condition. He knows the area well and is an avid hunter. The weather didn't really come into play much in this story, which is kind of shocking, I know. Um, but it was cold and cloudy. Now, the search and rescue folks brought in everything they could, you know, planes, bloodhounds, dozens of ground searchers, and they had cars patrolling kind of the outer edge of this area just to make sure Samuel didn't, you know, bust out of the woods to civilization and, and nobody know about it. Just after noon on October 13th, three days after Samuel went missing, some of the search, search and rescue personnel saw some birds circling in an area. And they decided they needed to check that out because it could be Samuel. They got to the area, and the birds were circling an area that was beneath a cliff. When they finally got to the base of this cliff, the group, which included Samuel's uncle, uh, found Samuel's dead body. A coroner's report indicated that Samuel had a major head and neck trauma and the belief was that he had fallen off the cliff, which was a good hundred feet high, and then probably tumbled and slipped down another two hundred feet as the at where the where the cliff where you would have landed from this cliff was basically just a giant steep hill full of boulders. Uh the next day in the newspapers it was stated again by the head of the search and rescue crew that this area, these cliffs, had been extensively searched by ground crews, dogs, and aircrafts to the point that they had written off the cliffs. Like, they knew Samuel was not there. They were not going to find him there. And so they were moving on to other territories. Searchers were also kind of shocked that Samuel would be found in this area because to get to these cliffs really wasn't smart or safe. You know, you wouldn't go hunting up there. There's nothing to hunt there. It's just very rugged terrain with lots of opportunities to slip and fall to your death. And it's not an area that many people visit. There's no good reason to visit it. And yet that's where Samuel was found. His family was surprised too. They, they thought that he, you know, that their attitude was we thought he knew better. 
Now, apparently, according to Mr. Politis, this region of the Cascade Mountains has a very, very bad reputation for strange disappearances and unusual deaths of hikers and hunters, most of which don't have a logical explanation. So this is just a short and sweet one to get us warmed up. Um, obviously sad. It seems like it would be explainable just by the slip and fall, but Politis has included it in his missing 411 materials, finding it strange that such an experienced hunter would be in such an uh, unwise situation. So that's, that's story number one, unscripted. Yeah, it's, it's like being at a live show, except, you know, you, you get to sit in a much more comfortable seat and there's not, you know, some fat guy behind you breathing hard, distracting you. All right, let's move on to our next tale. Up next, we've got the strange disappearance of Jeff Christensen. From the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, this occurred July 29th of 2005. Now, right off the bat, we have an oddity to deal with. Jeff was a park ranger. So he obviously knew this area pretty well. And actually, from what his colleagues said, if you were going to design a park ranger, Jeff would be pretty close to what you would want. He had, he was a EMT. He had worked as a ski patrolman. He was in excellent physical shape. He, you know, loved hiking, loved the outdoors. He liked patrolling the backcountry. And, you know, he was more than comfortable wandering around alone with just his service revolver and a walkie-talkie to keep him company. He loved his job. He would do anything he could for nature. And yet, nature seemed to have taken him. So, um, um, let's see. So this Jeff fella, Jeff fella, uh, I'm exaggerating how little prepared, how, how little I've prepared for this. So on, again, July 29th, 2005, at approximately 1.30 in the afternoon, a group of visitors saw Jeff, spoke to Jeff, and they were the last ones to ever see him alive. They just asked him some questions and then moved on. Now, the problem is the National Park Service, at least here, was not really keeping tabs on their employees very closely. Um, nobody realized that Jeff was missing until he didn't check in for his shift the following day. Apparently, there was just no one calling around to make sure everybody made it home at night. And so, you know, this costs some very valuable time. The... Once they realized Jeff was gone, though, of course, the Park Service, like, kicked this into a mega gear of searching. They were not going to let one of their own go missing. Uh, five helicopters ended up being deployed into the area where Jeff was last seen. Over 200 people on foot. Five bloodhound teams all went through the area. And they did this pretty much nonstop for five days without any leads, without the dogs picking up any scent, until something really strange happened on that following Wednesday. Gunshots were heard inside the National Park, and the radio became very static. So, whether or not, you know, a, a sign of distress for a hunter is to fire typically three times into the air. Uh, that's a distress signal. It's universally recognized. 
And, you know, if you're out hunting and you hear that, the expectation is you will try to find who's firing those shots and render aid. Certainly a park ranger is going to do everything they can to make it to that spot to, to help out. Additionally, the radio static they thought was meaningful because it could be Jeff trying to use his radio to reach out towards them and him just being barely outside the range. So they try to rush to the area where these gunshots come from. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult to pin down just based off of, you know, what you hear, where exactly somebody is. So, you know, they have the helicopters fly in that general area. All the, the people on foot start moving in that area. The bloodhounds move in that area. Um, but as they're rushing to try to get to this location where they hope and pray Jeff will be, there just happens to be a group of three hikers nearby. And they were uh, at an area known as Spectacle Lake. And they had found the body of Jeff Christensen. Uh, you know, these hikers weren't part of the search effort. They really didn't know this was going on because they had been out in the woods for a few days. And when authorities were able to arrive on the scene and secure Jeff's body, they noticed a couple odd things. Um, it was obvious that Jeff had fallen and suffered a significant head injury, but... He at least initially survived it because he had managed to bandage his head and hiked away from the accident site. And they've never been able to determine exactly where he fell. When they found his body and brought it in, they tested his equipment. His radio was in perfectly working order. It, it was not damaged in any way, even from the fall he took, it was usable. And so the park rangers and the search and rescue folks are talking amongst themselves of, well, why didn't he just radio for help? But for some reason, he never did. Now, the coroner estimated Jeff's time of death sometime between 6 p.m., and midnight on July 29th, which would have been the day he went missing. According to the coroner's report, there were no major injuries to Jeff's neck, chest, ribs, sternum, the back. He had no deformities, you know, or injuries that would indicate there was some sort of blunt force trauma. But the cause of death was determined to be that uh, Jeff had suffered severe skull fractures and an epidermal hematoma. Now, Politis thinks there's some sort of cover-up going on here because he did a Freedom of Information Act request for all records concerning Jeff's disappearance. And he received a response saying that there were records available, but the estimated cost to get the records to him would be over $7,000. And that's an absurdly high amount uh, for basically a copying fee. What what Politis also points to as being strange and unusual in this case is that Jeff was found less than one air mile from where he was last seen. He was in what they was described as a large basin, which would be an ideal position to be found because if you're at the bottom of this basin, most of the people on foot are going to be above you looking down, you know, and could easily look down to where you are. Certainly the aircraft that flew overhead should be able to see you easily. 
there's no explanation that Politis can come up with as to why Jeff wouldn't use his radio after he was injured. Certainly, to me, it makes sense that you can suffer a traumatic brain injury and thus not be thinking rationally. You know, you just kind of go into survival mode. Um, there's no, despite there, it being reported and it being talked of, there's no official report concerning the gunshots, you know, the distress signal. And that's not something that occurs regularly in a national park. You know, you, you, you don't generally get to hunt in a national park. There'd be no reason to discharge a firearm except, if, you know, if, in case you ran into a bad situation with an animal. But it's nowhere in the report, which is, you know, when you have an unusual event like a shooting coupled with the unusual event of a freaking park ranger going missing, that would seem kind of noteworthy to me. And it seemed noteworthy to Politis. Apparently, it's not recorded in any public record. Maybe it's in the 7,200, you know, or however much it was, dollars worth of copies. But there's no indication that they even bothered to test Jeff's gun to see if that was the weapon that was fired that everybody heard. And, you know, this one of the things this disappearance highlighted is apparently the National Park Service does not have policies in place to check on their personnel every day at the end of their shifts to make sure they got out of the national park safely or protocols for how to look for a missing park ranger or protocols on what to do if you're the missing park ranger. So this case kind of got a little bit of attention in that regard. But, you know, Politis, being the man who he is, he sees a conspiracy here, which... I mean, I think the copy, excuse me, I think the copy cost is outrageous. Beyond that, I think it's just an unfortunate situation that, that unfolded. So we're going to follow that one up with another strange one. I mean, I guess they're all strange. Uh, we're staying in Colorado, and we're going to 2013, specifically June 9th. We're looking for Dale Stetling. He was 51 years old at the time of his disappearance, and he disappeared in the Mesa Verde National Park. Now, I am not, I mean, I like these missing 411 stories as much as y'all do. I don't consider myself an expert in them because I just parrot back the information that Politis has put together. But Mesa Verde shows up a lot when you read about unusual or creepy or strange things happening in the American Southwest. And so I'm excited that we have a story that relates to it here. Uh, obviously, don't love the circumstances, but anyway, this national park is in the southwest corner of Colorado. It's in the Four Corners region there. And it used to be the home to the Pueblo Indians, who lived there from about 680 to 1300 before just kind of disappearing. And nobody knows why they left this area because they had carved, you know, homes into the cliffs. And, and I mean, this was kind of like one of their main, you know, settlements, one of their main, you know, towns or, or, or gathering points. Um, it contains, tons of archaeological sites, a whole bunch of, you know, like I said, cliff dwellings and uh, what do they call them, pictographs and things like that. This was one of the first parks made a national park by President Theodore Roosevelt back in 1906. So what that that's kind of the, the background here. So what we have is Dale and his wife, Deneen, 
basically going on a tour of some national parks they wanted to see. It was just them. They'd been married for 32 years. You know, they had their four kids and raised them. Now they had six grandkids. And it was just time for them to enjoy life. Um, Deneen worked as the pediatric care nurse and was using her vacation time. Dale was a retired butcher, and he was known for having kind of a bad back. That was something he complained of a lot. They were originally from Texas, and they were driving their motor home basically kind of at least all over the western part of the U.S. was the plan. I don't think they were going to cover the whole country, but they were going to hit up a bunch of national parks. Now, for whatever reason, the Mesa Verde National Park was not on their list of parks to visit. But their motorhome experienced some problems, and they had to stop right outside of Mesa Verde to have some maintenance performed on their RV. So they pull in to, you know, this, this mechanic shop on June 9th at approximately 4 p.m. And since they were so close to this park, Dale was like, let's, let's check it out. You know, it was only a quarter mile away to really get to the park to where you could see the first dwellings and things like that. And he said, you know, I'd really like to see it while we're here. Deneen said, you know, I'm going to wait here at the mechanics, largely because it was over 100 degrees out, and they weren't really prepared to hike in those conditions. But Dale wanted to go, so he left without taking any water, but he had his cell phone. Well, then Dale just didn't come back. Like I said, he left at 4 p.m., and at 7.20, Deneen called the National Park officials to report Dale missing. So the, this was a Sunday, June 9th. On Monday, June 10th, um, you know, the, the search kicked into high gear. They did start the night before, but with kind of a, for lack of a better term, a skeleton crew of searchers to initially go out there and try to find Dale. You know, they, they brought in the whole team Monday morning, uh, so we have searchers on foot, searchers in helicopter, searchers on horseback, and we have canine teams. Now, while this search is going on, a local reporter named Jody Peterson was at the National Park to do an interview with the park superintendent, just kind of to talk about the national park system in general uh, to pump it up, to try and encourage visitors to come out, things like that. She was not aware of the search that was going on. It was not a topic of the interview whatsoever. The superintendent never let on that a man was missing and they were looking for him. But Jody, since she was there after her interview with the superintendent, decided that she wanted to take a hike to kind of see some of these archaeological sites that were just all over Mesa Verde. So she, um, she decides to go off of what's called the Petroglyph Trail, which is about three miles long. And she said, you know, it's kind of late in the day, really hot, 102 degrees, what have you, but she thought she could handle a three-mile hike okay there. She described it as steep and rugged, and, you know, there were ledges you could fall off if you weren't careful. You had to squeeze between some, some, some tall rocks. There were rough kind of staircases carved into some of the, the rocks there. And so it was a little bit of a rugged trail, but it was well-defined. It was easy to navigate. And again, you know, she kind of did this on a whim, which indicates that most people would be able to get through, you know, this three mile hike without a problem. Now, about halfway through her hike, she passed a panel of petroglyphs and she heard 
a voice from somewhere up ahead. It was a man's voice, and it sounded kind of weary, kind of gravelly. And the voice said, I need some help. That's all the voice said. You know, there was no crying out or anything like that. It was just kind of a tired statement. I need some help. But, you know, she knew it was coming from ahead of her on the trail, but she didn't know where. And though she kept a lookout as she walked on, she never saw anything. She didn't hear anything. And, you know, she thought it was possible that what she had overheard was someone talking to some companions who were on uh, a nearby trail. And so she finished her hike, never saw anything. And when she gets back and is about ready to leave, she hears about the search for this missing man. So she goes to the chief park ranger that was there and says, hey, I know y'all are doing this search. I just want y'all to know I was on this trail and the, the petroglyph trail. And while I was on it, I heard a man say that he needed help but I never saw anybody. And the park ranger kind of got excited. And according to this reporter, Jody, she said that like relief kind of washed over the chief park ranger's face because he said, we had reports from that same area of a man calling from help yesterday. He must be there. We're going to go search again. And so, you know, they just descend on this trail. They focus on all the, you know, just basically anywhere that, that you could roll a ball off of this trail. They were there. They were searching. And they did this for eight straight days before they finally had to reduce the size of their team because they just weren't finding anything. Ultimately, Dale was never found. The, the more skeleton crew search continued for several more weeks. I mean, they did not give up on finding Dale or his body. They brought in cadaver dogs to help, but they never found a single piece of evidence that Dale was ever on that trail. Now, there's a couple of odd things included here that Politis wants to point out. The first one is, in an interview with the newspaper, uh, Deneen stated to a reporter, when I look back, there are a whole bunch of signs that we should not have taken this trip. No other details given, which is just so frustrating, because what were the signs? What was going on? We want to know the juicy bits. The other thing that Politis collected that he found interesting is Dale's phone. There was only ever a partial ping off of a cell phone tower. And this was about 7 p.m. the day he went missing, the day he went on his hike. And his phone attempted to make a call to its voicemail. If you tried calling the phone, which of course searchers did, of, of course his wife did, it would go straight to voicemail. Now, Politis says from his experience, because he is a former cop, he does do some search and rescue stuff, that typically when somebody falls, if their phone activates, by default it tends to go to voicemail. So he's concerned that Dale fell off a cliff and that's the reason why his phone pinged off that tower around 7 p.m. But nobody's ever been found. No signs of life, no signs of death, no footprints to follow. Nothing. And again, you've got bloodhounds there. You end up having cadaver dogs come through the area. And if you're continuing the search for weeks in a very high temperature environment, 
it's almost guaranteed that your body is going to decompose and it's going to sink and humans would probably be able to pick it up much less trained search dogs yet not once did they ever hit and it's like Vale Dale was just erased from the universe just totally disappeared one of those wild fun missing 411 stories right Okay, next up, we're going to do the story of Dr. Catherine Wong, who went missing from Bear Valley, California in February of 1999. She was only 47 at the time of her disappearance. So, on this date, she and her husband decided to go skiing at the Bear Valley Ski Resort. This is... Um, one of the closest ski locations to San Francisco. Very popular, very well trafficked. And the Wongs spent the day skiing together. Uh, at Towards the end of the day, as they were getting close to making their final run, they, you know, go up the ski lift to the top of the mountain. And there's two runs that they want to take or each one of them wants to take a different run, but they, they're parallel runs. They go right next to each other. So they said, you know what? I'm going to take mine, you take yours, and we'll just meet at the bottom. They, I mean, they literally started together and ended together and then stayed next to each other. So her husband, John, does his trail, gets to the bottom, waits on his wife, but she never arrived. You know, a a after several minutes of waiting, he eventually contacted Ski Patrol and told them, look, you know, my wife and I were going down these two runs. I finished mine, you know, 20 minutes ago. She's not here. Will you check to see if she's fallen and gotten hurt or something like that? So Ski Patrol went off to check, but they also apparently, per, per their protocol, contacted the Sheriff's Department. They searched all up and down that run and found nothing. The sheriff then decided to call in Alpine search and rescue teams. They also brought in helicopters and canines. And they spent two days searching before weather conditions forced them to kind of call off the search for a while. But in those two days, they found nothing. Now, they couldn't get back to search again until mid-May. They decided, you know, by the time these storms had passed, the odds of Dr. Wong being alive were not great. So let's wait until the snow melts so it'll be easier to find her remains. So in mid-May of 1999, they go back up on the mountain and again... Despite the size of the team and the resources they have available, nothing is found. It was so confusing to law enforcement authorities that they decided that Dr. Wong had not suffered any sort of tragic fate, but that it was more likely than not that she had used this opportunity to get away from her husband and voluntarily run off to start a new life. Now, this this is Brad speaking just, you know, as an attorney trying to apply some common sense here. A, a doctor can't just run off and start a new life. Uh, you, you spend all that time in medical school, all that time in training. You finally get into this profession, into this vocation. And then you just want to give it up to run off. That doesn't make a lick of sense to me because she can't just like show up in Ohio and start practicing medicine. I mean, they're going to need proof that she's a licensed doctor, so they're going to have to contact California. No doubt law enforcement would get word of that. She can't stay hidden for long, but that's that's the approach they went with. But they didn't stop searching which is important, and they should be applauded for that. 
And finally, on June 9th, uh, search and rescue teams found some evidence of Dr. Wong. They found some ski equipment, which her husband identified as being hers, as well as some other articles and some bones. What was strange about this was everything was found outside of the skiing area. And not just a little outside, but significantly outside. Like over half a mile outside of the resort's boundaries. And if you've ever been skiing, it's hard typically to ignore the boundaries. I mean, they usually have fencing netting, all sorts of things up to make it clear that, hey, you're leaving the area we're con in control of and you're going out on your own, don't do that. And so she, to get to this position, not only would she have to leave this trail in the middle of it, but she would then have to go another half mile through it sounds like very deep, very powdery snow, which would be a massive <laughs> pain in the butt. Even if it's just a half mile, you, you, you know, th this is what you need snowshoes for, not, not skis. You're just going to sink into the powder. Um, when she was found, again, bones were found, but not a skeleton. And so the sheriff kind of tossed out this theory that maybe a bear or coyote got a hold of her. Now, the there's a lot that go that's wrong with this to me. Again, like I said earlier, you, you can't just walk away from life as a doctor. Or, I mean, it would be very, very unusual to walk away from everything you've spent your your 40 plus years building in your life so the the sheriff's deputies were able to identify the bones and the gear as being dr wong's based solely on the fact that her driver's license was in what was recovered as far as politis knows and reports no dna tests or other sort of identify identification tests were performed on the remains. Second, this is not a bear attack. This is, I mean, bears hibernate, guys. That, that you know, she, she didn't, she didn't go off course and then get mauled. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe she got coyoted. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either because they're typically not out looking for prey so close to a ski resort like this. But then again, her being half a mile away, maybe that's far enough away that it could do this. Um, I don't know how she would travel that half mile. I mean, that would just be... Like I said a minute ago, that would just be a, a rigorous bit of exercise. And what I find most confusing is Ski Patrol and the initial searchers. I mean, she was the only one on the run when she went missing. And so considering that her husband didn't wait very long to report her missing, there's probably not a lot of people going off trail during this time frame. So Ski Patrol would have had a good chance of seeing, you know, the trail that her skis left behind if she went off the groomed path. And they would have been able to follow her very, very easily. But apparently no one ever saw these trails. Does that mean they missed them? Does that mean they weren't there? I don't know. I mean, of course, logic says they were there and people missed them. But when it's your job to be, you know, 
good at finding people in the snow, you would think that'd be something you would key in on. And with these missing 411 stories, the fact that there's no ski trails left doesn't really shock me in the least. But it's it's a very strange, strange, strange missing person story to me. I mean, I, I, doctors just don't, you know, give up their trade that easily. Uh, and apparently there's nothing in her background that suggests she was, you know, mentally ill, that she was, you know, in trouble in any way, that there were any financial problems, anything like that. She just, like Dale in the last story, she just vanished, but some of her bones came back. The rest of her body's never been found either, which makes it even stranger. Weird story. Okay, our last story. Don't don't cry. All good things have to come to our end. Our last story is an unusual one because it's a double disappearance. Almost always in these missing 411 cases, it's a single person who goes missing. But this is a, a, a double shot of uh, strangeness here. And we're going up to British Columbia. That's, that's in Canada, if you're not learned like I am. Uh, we're, we're specifically going to places I'm going to terribly mispronounce. Uh, Pemberton, British Columbia, maybe something like that, to the date of September 8th, 2010, where we are looking for Rachel Bagnell, who is 25 years old, and Jonathan Jett, who is 34. Now, the two had become friends at a local gym, that kind of specialized in, I guess it was like, you know, one of these CrossFit type gyms, but it had, you know, stuff dedicated to more outdoorsy stuff. So rock walls and whatnot. They met there. They both had a love of the outdoors. Um, Rachel was actually in her third year of medical school residency. While Jonathan was a governmental attache for the Canadian government in Quebec. That's such a cool title for a job. Um, again, they both just love the outdoors, love doing anything that, you know, hiking, skiing, snowmobiling, uh, climbing, you know, any of this stuff, they were all about it. And like I said, when they met at this gym, they just clicked. Like they just became quick friends. And so, you know, obviously we're talking about two people who are in extremely good physical condition, extremely intelligent. And so they decide to do basically a three-day trip. And it was a special one because they were going to have to separate for a year. Rachel was going to South America to help out some underprivileged villages and you know that didn't have access to medical care um and you know jonathan's job was going to require him to stay in vancouver so they um decided they were going to go to this park in pemberton um and so recreating the day's events they left like early, early, early in the morning of September 4th, 2010. They stopped at a Tim Hortons on the way and purchased some coffee and some hot chocolate. They kept driving north um, when they parked their car near uh, Mount Curie. And it was believed that their destination was towards Valentine Lake because this had a very large and well-maintained trail, but it gave them an opportunity to do some rock climbing there. They were, because they were right, you know, because they left when? When, when did they leave? On the 4th, that's right. I'm asking you, I'm not, I'm not looking it up again. I'm I'm a better, more professional host than that. 
Um, again, this is supposed to be a three-day trip, so they'd be headed home on the 7th. When they didn't come home on the afternoon of the 8th, Rachel's sister called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They searched the area for two days, uh, found the vehicle, you know, saw the coffee cups inside, and they called the two families and said, hey, listen, we need you to go through their stuff and tell us what what's missing. What did they bring with them on this trip? And they did this for the purpose of trying to figure out whether or not this truly was a three-day trip or if they intended to be gone longer. But both uh, uh, both families independently reported that basically enough clothing was missing for them to be gone for three days. So it was consistent with the story they had been telling everyone. The RCMP like put a massive effort into locating Rachel and Jonathan. They had bloodhounds brought in, um, bloodhounds who found no scent, as we hear so often in these stories. Lots of um, search and rescue teams, you know, offered to help. The RCMP brought in some helicopters or even some private helicopters that were donated to the search. Uh, weather was kind of dicey, and so they couldn't have any air support for several days during the search. But they did everything they could, and they went hard at it for 10 days looking for this couple and found nothing. On top of that, the two families pulled their money together and basically paid for four private searches that were conducted by experienced kind of wilderness uh, experts who are familiar with the area. They found nothing. All in all, over 2,000 man hours were put into the search with, with nothing to, to be found. Not, not a single piece of evidence was found of, of either one of these these people. Jonathan's family was concerned because he had been nursing an injured knee and they were, you know, worried that maybe during the hike he had hurt it again and that slowed things down. But of course, this doesn't explain why there's no evidence of either Rachel or Jonathan on this hiking trail. Now, from what the the sergeant in charge of this investigation kind of told the media, this was a time of year where there would be very, very low traffic on this trail. In fact, if there was no traffic, that would not surprise them. And so these two were really going into the woods in a situation where they were all alone, despite being on a very well-marked and well-maintained trail. During their search, again, no evidence was found, and that included any signs of campfires or cookware being left somewhere or anything of that, of that ilk. Say it again, canines were brought in, searched everywhere. Not a single one caught a scent. Entirely possible the weather contributed to that, but again, it's unusual. And this is just one of those where it's just a classic missing 411 case, isn't it? You've got two people who are at the upper end of the spectrum as far as both intelligence and physical condition. You've got them going off into a national park and what turns out to be a remote area. There's no scent left behind. There's no footprints, so campfires, nothing indicating that they had ever been to this park other than the fact that their car was parked right there. 
the weather kind of comes in and hampers search efforts. And there's just no logical explanation for what happened to this couple. It, it, to me, the fact that it's a couple that goes missing seems stranger and more confusing than a single person going missing. Because again, like the park ranger we talked about, he falls off you know, a rock or a cliff or whatever, bangs up his head pretty good. He may not be thinking straight. Here, if, say, Rachel fell off and bonked her noggin, you've at least got Jonathan there to help her and to be on the lookout for, you know, park rangers or other personnel, anybody, any person that could offer aid. And yet there's just nothing. Um, one thing I didn't mention is the family plastered the area with posters with the, the, the camp director's permission. Camp director sounds like it was a sleepover camp. I, I don't know. It, uh, superintendent, I guess, whatever. Big guy in charge. Uh, they plastered posters of Jonathan and Rachel everywhere. No one ever responded to them. It's just, it's just strange. So, you know, this missing 411 stuff goes beyond the States. It reaches up into Canada and there's actually reports in some of Politis's books going to Australia and Switzerland and all that. So I gave you a little bit of international flair. Well, it's conclusion time. And what do I say for every missing 411 episode? What is there to analyze and talk about? Uh, they're all just such strange stories, and that's what makes them fun in a you know gruesome kind of way. Uh, you know, you, you hate you hate. I mean, you feel for the families. It, it's it's awful. It's got to be awful to lose a family member and not have any closure on where they went, where, what happened to them, how, what fates they suffered, you know, and, and I know, you know, it's got to bug you that the idea that, well, maybe they're still alive and maybe they're, you know, something's happened to them. Maybe they got kidnapped and maybe we should be trying to help. But I mean, these are just weird stories. Like if, even if there is foul play involved, if we go back to Dr. Wong, who's, you know, a half mile outside of the ski resort. How does she get there? How, how does she die so that just some bone fragments are left behind? Absolutely could be animals. Absolutely. It does not explain how she got there. Um, you know, the, these stories just never, ever, ever add up. It's, you know... Of all the people you would expect not to go missing as a park ranger, we've got a story of a park ranger going missing and being found dead without seemingly making any effort to call for help or whatnot. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. This is what, probably our eighth installment of these stories. And they just never get any clearer. And, and I, I said this in the last Missing 411 we did, and I'll repeat it here. You know, Politis, he is the Missing 411 man. I mean, he gets credited with identifying this phenomenon and collecting stories about this phenomenon and making a big enough fuss so that people became aware of, you know, the term Missing 411 and, and all this stuff. You know, recently, he's lost a lot of credibility with a lot of people. Um, I guess I would be one of them just from the standpoint of, you know, for him to continue to be relevant, this is almost a pyramid scheme, right? He's got to he's gotta have more stories to fill more books to keep being published, keep being relevant. And he's going to start 
being less picky and choosy about what stories he includes. I think the ones I picked out are for the most part reasonably within that missing 411 classic definition. But, you know, now he's he's talking about things such as aliens and, and alternate dimensions and all that, which, you know, I, I'm 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 a fool. I'm open to that stuff. I'll entertain it. Um, but and I haven't I haven't you know, he's come out with a documentary that's about UFOs. I haven't seen it. Um, I don't know how sound his reasoning is on it. If it is, but I hope it's something more than well. What else could it be? Um, you know. Anyway, fun stories. I hope you enjoy them, and you know this is a good way again hours worth of entertainment, or I hope it's entertainment. Uh, for very little work for me, you know. I I just find the stories and then stumble through reading them for y'all. So yay for both of us. But, you know, if you're a veteran of our podcast and you or of Missing 411 in general, you kind of know what the deal is. You know, I, I used to start episodes with kind of an intro to Missing 411. I didn't do that today because this was unscripted. So I didn't have it in my notes because I don't have any notes. All right. Well, um, that means I'm going to ramble a whole lot less. So let's just get to our palate cleanser. And I, 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 I'm going to pat myself on the back here because I think, I think I'm taking us to a new low when it comes to palate cleansers. Because I read this one and I said, "Oh God, nobody who has any self-respect would laugh at that." So after I stopped giggling, I decided it was perfect for this episode. Now, please do prepare yourselves because it's quite bad, okay? Not raunchy or anything like that. It's it's just poor quality. It's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So here we go. Deep breath. What is better than Ted Danson? The actor from Cheers and other shows. Ted Danson. What is better than Ted Danson? This is the punchline. You're supposed to laugh after this. Ted singing and dancing. Ah! Ah! Is that a new low? I think that's a new low. I don't know how you can hear that and say that ain't a new low. Whew! Okay, well, we've had fun, hopefully. I hope you enjoyed it. I know Missing 411 always gets us all excited. So there's several stories for you. If you can figure them out, please uh, let me know the solutions to these puzzles. In the meanwhile, please always feel free to reach out to me with you know story suggestions or things like that. I'm still in a very awkward phase of the podcast life from the standpoint of, I don't know if I'm going to record each week. Um, that's what we had this week. That's why this one's unscripted. But hopefully it wasn't a total disaster. If you survived it and enjoyed it somehow, miraculously, please, please, please share it with your friends. This is a good episode to share with your friends because everybody hears these stories and kind of goes, what? So, um, you know, friends, family, colleagues, animals you like, you know, radio personalities, any celebrities, influencers, things like that. I, I gave a KMH sticker to, to the, to Jake, the recording artist, Jake, if you're familiar with him, because I took my kids to his concert and we paid for the meet and greet. So hopefully Jake, if you're on your tour bus, you're listening and you're not terribly disappointed in us. Uh, but you know, that's the sort of thing. Just, just getting looks and listens wherever we can. And of course, I mean, how could I not say it? Hamson, Susanna, Daryl, Sam. I mean, you're like, 
y'all joining up within a week of each other. You're, you're my Ninja Turtles. You're my fearsome foursome. My Fantastic Four. I think I'd rather be the Fantastic Four rather than Ninja Turtle. Life would be a little bit easier. Unless you were the thing. He really got the short end of the stick. Poor Ben Grimm. Anyway, um, if y'all want to sign up, just check the show notes. $5 a month. You get two bonus episodes a month. Or that's our goal. We don't always hit it, but we do the best we can. We're a plucky little podcast. And beyond that, that's all I got. So everybody be cool. Be cool to each other. Be cool to strangers. Help spread the gospel of the Killing, Missing, Hidden podcast. And I hopefully will see you kids next week. Until then, Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden. The podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.